turn to Matthew chapter 7. It's also printed for you in the bulletin. It's on page 9 this morning. But if you brought a copy of God's Word or if uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you, then you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we will be looking at verses 15 through 20 together this morning. We are continuing our trek through the Sermon on the Mount. This is our 25th part together, and by His grace, we will draw near to the end of this section in Matthew's Gospel in another week or two. But today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 7, looking again at verses 15 through 20. So hear this. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. This is Jesus speaking. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. I'm going on record here, okay? Going on record here, three months early, three months early, to proclaim that I love fake Christmas trees, all right? (laughs) Love them, all right? Three months early, you can write it down as we approach the Christmas season. I I love fake Christmas trees, but this is a bone of contention in my house, in our house, because my wife loves real Christmas trees, okay? Loves them. Loves real Christmas trees. Okay, we could probably take a show of hands here over who you would side with, and that's, that's okay. We'll do that another time, all right? But she loves real Christmas trees, and because I wholeheartedly subscribe to the mantra, happy wife, happy life, right? We have done even things like bring a real Christmas tree from North Carolina, okay? When I used to have my pickup truck, we put one in the bed of the truck one Christmas season, wrapped it in a giant tarp, and brought that sucker all the way down from North Carolina into our tiny, tiny living room at the time, okay? So she loves the real Christmas trees. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I do as well. I love certain parts. I love the smell of a real Christmas tree. Nothing substitutes that. Not even those candles, okay? They don't, they don't hold a candle, right? Pun intended. To the real thing. But I love the convenience of fake Christmas trees. I love their low maintenance, Right? You can fold them into a box. They don't drop uh, needles. There's no chance of bugs. They don't require water. And many of them even come pre-lit. Right? They come with the lights already attached to them. I mean, how easy is this? How, yeah, it's great. It's great. So I love them for that reason. All right? The same reason why I love even these fake plants we have. Right? As you know, I keep adding fake plants okay, anywhere I can into our sanctuary, why? Well, they look just good enough, just good enough, and they accomplish just enough of the real purpose, again, that a tree would, 
But without all the nurture and the care and the attention and the maintenance that are required of a real tree, for instance, okay? So the beauty of a fake tree, the beauty of a fake Christmas tree is its appearance and its convenience. The problem of a fake tree, again, of any kind, is that if you expect from it the function or the fruit of a real tree, then what's going to happen? You're going to be sorely disappointed, right? You might be able to get like a bowl of wax fruit, right, to go with your wax tree, but nobody wants that, okay? So again, the, the, the beauty is the appearance and the convenience and the comfort even, but the problem is if you then expect from those artificial trees anything a real tree is supposed to offer, you, of course, will be disappointed. If you hold that admittedly silly idea or silly illustration in your head this morning, then you'll have insight into the teaching of Jesus in these verses. Remember that Jesus, up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, on this macro, big picture level, has been instructing his disciples or instructing his followers on the difference or the contrast between false religion and the realities of his kingdom. He has been instructing his disciples or his followers on the difference between this external box-checking, tip-of-the-cap, keeping of the law, to a genuine, internal, heartfelt relationship to the law, but more importantly, to the God who stands behind that law. Because if you remember, as we mentioned last week and in many, many weeks together, the law was not God itself. The law is not God itself, but the law is a tool in the hand of God that he wields to draw people to himself. And so, for instance, one of the things we're going to see in the sermon is that the law functions as a mirror. And we saw this together for many, many weeks. The law functions as a mirror, a two-way mirror, if you will, where in one hand it reflects the utter, inapproachable, perfect, majestic holiness of God in every imaginable way. But then when that mirror is turned to us as humans, it reflects our frailty, and it reflects our sin, and it reflects our abject inability to keep that law no matter how hard we try. And so the law here, as Christ interprets it and as he unpacks it, becomes limitless in its application. That the teachers of his day had tried to box it in, and Christ now comes to set the law free, really, but in reality, to set us free as well. And we begin to see that over the weeks together. If you recall, the Pharisees and, and, and teachers like them in the day of Christ, they appeared zealous for the law and they appeared zealous for God. But it was because they had, in a way, muted the law. They had turned the volume down on the law in a way that put them at the center and their ability to keep it. They make the law more about themselves than the God behind it. And Christ, of course, comes as this upstart rabbi, but in reality, God himself. Christ comes, and he doesn't turn down the law, but what does he do? He amplifies it. He amplifies it. He turns the volume up on the law back to the volume it needs to be. And, of course, in doing so, what happens is that through Christ's proper interpretation of the law as God himself... His interpretation of the law begins to sort of turn the tables where far more are guilty. In fact, all are guilty and far fewer 
are then found to be righteous. And of course, then is that this then is supposed to drive us to God. And so, as his sermon has continued to unfold, and as he now brings it then to a close, he begins to land the plane on this sermon, as we started to talk about last week. He continues this contrast of false religion with real relational Christianity, but he now turns that warning rebuke, or he turns his criticism from the message itself, from the mechanisms of false religion themselves, if you will, to the messengers of such. So as he lands the plane on this sermon, which is his great interpretation and commentary and fulfillment of the law, he turns his attention and his rebuke from the message and mechanisms of false religion themselves to the messengers of such things. He turns from the teaching or the products, if you will, to the merchants themselves. Good way to think about this is if you buy something at the store, right? if you go to Home Depot and you buy a new grill or something like that, right? and there's a faulty part, what happens a lot of times is if you look in the manual, or your proof of purchase, it'll say, before you return to the store, do what? Call the manufacturer, right? They're like, hey, take us out of the equation. Go to the source, right, first, before you come to us. Well, in a sense, Christ now has taken the faulty teaching, the false religion, the false understanding, the broken understanding of the law, and he now goes to the source of such teaching, and he says, beware. Already out? Oh, there we go. We're back. Fantastic. All right. Beware of false prophets. Okay, so the question for us this morning then is who or what is a false prophet according to Jesus' definition? Who or what is a false prophet according to his definition? Well, the first thing to do is to define the word prophet, to define the word prophet. Because we mistakenly can think that someone is a prophet if they are just someone who is trying to predict the future, Right? If they can predict the future, they're a prophet. And of course, this comes, rightfully so, from our understanding of some of the Old Testament prophets who did play that role, in in a sense, and who did fulfill that role at times in the plan of God, where they could point forward to future events in God's redemptive history. But we can also sometimes think of that falsely today, that, that a prophet is only somebody who, again, tries to predict the future. And so then when we think of false prophets, we only think of someone, you know, who's like a, a wacko on a documentary that had a cult or, or started a compound somewhere, you know, or, or bought a billboard that like guaranteed the return date of Jesus. You've seen those, right? On 95 sometimes, the, the, the guaranteed return date of Jesus, that that's a false prophet. Well, of course, that person might belong in the false prophet club. But a larger definition, a larger rank-and-file definition of the word is anyone who is speaking on behalf of God. Anyone who is authoritatively speaking on behalf of God or anyone who is proclaiming authoritatively a message about God. And this is why Paul, for instance, in his letters in the New Testament, will talk about that a prophet is someone who encompasses this larger teaching proclamation Ministry, someone who speaks on behalf of God or who serves as his mouthpiece. So, again, the question is what does it look like today? What does that look like today? Because, again, these are, these are Christ's words of warning 2,000 plus 
years ago in his context. This is his polemic against someone like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is his polemic against, you know, those wild, itinerant, would-be messiahs or those wild, itinerant, would-be preachers who would spring up and build followings in a very fervent religious environment like first century Israel. But how do we apply it today? How do we apply this, this idea today? And the answer is to go back to the beginning and, again, think of the artificial plant. Think of the artificial Christmas tree, the one who looks the part, who plays the part, but upon closer inspection does not actually deliver what is most needed, which is the truth about God as he has been revealed in the gospel, as he has been revealed in the one and only final revelation, which is the person of Christ, in his finished work. So, so think about some passages, for instance. Think about Colossians chapter 2. Hear this from Paul. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all who have not seen me face to face, that your hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So here's Paul. Right, prophetically speaking, the knowledge of God's mystery is found where? In Christ, in Christ only, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of knowledge. And I say this, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, that no one might delude you with false eloquence, false articulation, but that you might be reminded that the full mystery of God, all revelation and knowledge, the full wisdom of God has been revealed where? In Christ. In Christ alone. He says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 1, it will actually sing a song at the end of service that kind of is taken from this passage, ironically. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put also his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, that spirit of God enables us to hear those who preach, to hear those who you know, prophesy, if you will, proclaim the word of God and recognize if it is Christ or not. In Christ alone are all the promises of God fulfilled. All of his promises find their yes. Lastly, Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God did speak to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, how has he spoken? So God did speak through people like the prophets of old, all throughout redemptive history, but how does God speak today? How does God speak to you in 21st century America today? Well, yes, it can also be through preachers, although we're way different from Old Testament prophets. We're not equitable, okay? I'm not trying to make us equitable. Okay, their words are wholly inspired in Scripture, and mine are not, right? But how does God speak to us today? Well, he does speak through preachers and teachers and servants of God, if, if those words 
continually point to Christ, right? We are the mouthpiece of Christ alone. So again, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. For he is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ here gives us criteria for how to discern true prophets from false, and he does so as he continues through way of illustration. And the question we're supposed to ask as we look at these illustrations he gives us is who does the prophet, the true prophet, who does the true prophet or preacher or teacher seek to promote seek to to prosper and seek to protect? Who does the true prophet, the true teacher of God, seek to promote, prosper, and protect? So take the first example he gives us of sheep and wolves. Sheep and wolves. There's this great bit uh, by Seinfeld, that inspired theologian Jerry Seinfeld, right? There's a great bit by him in one of his routines where he remarks about airplane bathrooms. You may have heard this before. He remarks about airplane bathrooms, and he's amazed by their tiny size, but how in that tiny size they have everything you could ever imagine, everything you could ever need. In fact, they even have things you don't need. Like there's a slot in airplane bathrooms for used razor blades, okay? Used razor blades. And so the question that Seinfeld asks is, who is shaving on an airplane? Number one, right? Who's shaving on an airplane? But shaving so much, they're actually using up razor blades, right? Like, is that a thing? And so he asked the question, is the wolf man, you know, on board? Is the wolf man, you know, kind of trimming his five o'clock shadow uh, on the plane? Or, or, you know, what's happening? What, what is going on? Well, to Christ's point here, if the wolf man came to interview for a job as shepherd, again, think of Christ's analogy here, wolves and sheep. If the wolf man came to interview for job as shepherd, he might successfully shave the hair from his face. He might don the right clothing, the staff, the wool garment. He might look the part. He might play the part. But the most important job you need him to do, which again is to promote the gospel and not himself, and to protect and prosper the sheep, well, those things won't just get done, but what will happen? They will be compromised from the start. He will actually use those things for his gain, his promotion, his prosperity, and not that of the sheep. And we know that because this this term here that's actually used for ravenous wolves can be and is, in other translations, uh, rendered as swindler. Swindler. Beware of religious swindlers, okay? Beware of ravenous wolves. Again, someone who takes advantage, someone who actively deceives, someone who intentionally seeks to use, again, the gospel and the sheep for their agenda, for their own gain, and not for that of God's, not for the protection and promotion of the sheep, not for the prosperity of the gospel, but for their own, and unfortunately this happens all the time in ministry as we know. We like to think this is a 21st century kind of, you know, television preacher problem, but it's not. In fact, Christ is here talking about it in his very day, and we know Paul spends a lot of time talking about this in his letters, where he is constantly having to contrast himself and separate himself from these false 
prophets and apostles and teachers. So one of the things we're called to look for then, again, if you're ever relocating and looking for a new church, if you're ever advising a friend on where to attend church, one of the things you should hold me accountable for, again, as a preacher and teacher here in your midst, is this criteria. Do I, do other pastors you're with, promote the gospel of God each and every Sunday more than themselves? Do they seek to protect and prosper the sheep? Do they promote the great shepherd, Christ himself? And do they do so through things like the teaching of right doctrine? You know, protecting us from false doctrine. Prospering the sheep through feeding them with the word of God. Protecting the sheep from ungodly living and worldly temptation. Protecting the sheep from themselves even by being truth tellers. Why do we confess our sin each and every week? Because I'm called to be a truth teller. I love to come here and say we don't need to do any confessing. Everyone's good. I know how you're all doing. I know how I'm doing. But that'd be false, right? Truth tellers even of hard news. Truth telling of hard realities in our lives that protect us even from ourselves and our own temptations and our own desires to be God. Those are the things that we should look for. Not somebody swayed by influence or appearance or money or popularity or acceptance, but somebody who preaches the gospel at all times to all people without exceptions. That's what we look for. That's what we look for in churches, in ministries, in our preachers, and teachers among us. But Christ gives one more illustration. It's that of trees and fruit, trees and fruit. And it's here that he drives home the point, if you will, about perception and reality. Perception and reality. Again, the wolf man can shave and don the shepherd's cloak and the staff. But a shepherd has proven how? Not by their outfit, not by the staff, but by their duties, by the way they conduct themselves in and among and with the sheep. And that becomes even clearer here when Christ speaks about fruit and trees. You will know a true teacher of God's word versus a false teacher, not by merely what they say, for those are the leaves, if you will. The leaves, the outward things, are what we say. Because the truth is, you can buy a sermon online, right? Don't worry, I don't, okay? But I could go buy a sermon online and recycle it. I don't. Okay, I promise, you can Google whatever you want to do. I don't, okay? You can borrow somebody else's sermons. I don't, okay? These are original, okay? Don't worry. You can get a theological degree, right? And the stamp of approval, all those kinds of things. You can look like the big, beautiful tree with green leaves of eloquence. With green leaves of eloquence. But if someone were to look closer, what would they find? If somebody were to approach the tree what would they find? Would they find fruit that matches? Think about Galatians 5, which we read earlier in our service, and it delineates the fruit of the Spirit. If you were to look closer, would you find fruit? Prophets, preachers, and teachers, the talking is the leaves everyone sees on the outside, but the living is the fruit. Charisma is often what people see on the outside, and it's rewarded and applauded in the church. But Christ here says it's the character that matters. 
It's the character by which you inspect and conclude real teaching from false. For Paul himself later tells us in 1 Corinthians, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in what? But in power. Power. The power of a godly life, Christ here says, they are recognized by their fruits. And so these are the things that we are called to ask and look for as the people of God, that we are called to look for and ask as his sheep. And we can see then how this passage enables us to evaluate our churches and our leaders and our ministries. But, now I get to turn, now I get to turn it a little bit. Now I get to turn the table a little bit. And we ask ourselves, but how about you? How about all of us? Because again, if this is the criteria for pastors and teachers and prophets, if you will, those who are in charge of leading the sheep, it makes sense that this is also the same criteria for the flock of God as a whole. If you bear the name Christian, you might not stand up here like I do, but if you bear the name Christian, if you confess Christ as Lord and Savior, then we're told elsewhere by Jesus that we are like branches on a larger vine. That he is the vine and we are the branches. And so the question for all of us this morning, again, whether you're up here, whether you're sitting in the pew, whether you lead Bible studies at home or in somewhere else in your life, or whether you just sit in the pew again, whatever it might be, if you bear the name Christian, we're called to look a bit more carefully and inspect a bit closer and ask ourselves, when people look at us, when people look at us as the branches, do they find matching fruit? We claim the vine, we claim the name of Christ. When they look at us as branches, do they find fruit that matches? Do they find fruit that resembles Christ? Or are we Christians in name and words only and not in personal piety or power? That's the question for us. Are we Christians only in the pew on Sunday, or are we Christians in practice, in priorities, and in life the other six days of the week? It's a question for all of us. It's a question for all of us. And I tell you what, if you feel conviction over that question, if I feel conviction, as I should, when I tell you, don't just listen to my words, but look at my life, you better believe I feel conviction. You better believe I don't want you to look too closely. Because I know I'm a sinner. And I know I fall short of the Savior that I proclaim, and you do as well. And if we feel conviction about that, then what do we do? Do we despair? Do we lose hope? If we admit often the fruit of our lives doesn't match the vine we claim to be a part of, no, the answer is not to wallow in guilt or discouragement. It's not to despair. But what is the answer? It's to fix your gaze more squarely on Christ. It's to fix your gaze more squarely on Jesus himself, who is the ultimate true shepherd. He is the one who secured the protection and the prosperity of the sheep at great cost to himself at great cost to himself. When the wolves came, when Satan threatened, Christ didn't run, but he ran headlong into the storm. He ran headlong 
for you, for me. When we despair of our own righteousness and obedience and fruit, we look to Jesus, who is the ultimate tree, the true tree, if you will, that bore the true fruit, for it's Christ himself who allowed himself to be crucified, nailed to a tree. Nailed to a tree. Why? That in doing so, he might bring forth the true fruit of our salvation. That he might bring forth the true fruit. After he himself bore the fruit of a perfect law-keeping life, he laid that life down. Why? That he might again bring forth at his cross the fruit of a church, the fruit of a people of God, the fruit of people who have been redeemed. And in his death and resurrection, his atonement again, he might bear the fruit at Calvary of a forgiven people. That he himself, Christ himself, is now that tree of life who we look to and we partake of in receiving salvation. So again, the question for all of us, all of us, me, you, all of us, is how about you this morning? How about me? We should beware of false religion, beware of false prophets, and instead we fix our eyes continually on Jesus, the true religion, the true prophet, the true tree and shepherd who, again, by his grace, can empower us to bear the great fruit of faith as we continue to look to him and continue to trust him, to cultivate that and to see that come forth all the days of our life. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for this word you have given to us this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, we thank you for its convicting power, but we also thank you for its encouraging reminder that drives us back to Christ, the true word that drives us back to Christ, that word who was made flesh for us, that one who reveals all of your fullness and glory to us. And so, Lord, again, we thank you for the great gift of Scripture. And we pray, Lord, now that you would enable us to take these words and this reflection to heart, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might leave here again this morning not just having been hearers of your word, but doers as well. So bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.